This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Chip in Tampa, Florida, on January 26, 2006. The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. Sixth London Edition by Charles Darwin. Chapter 12. Second Section. Dispersal during the Glacial Period. The identity of many plants and animals on mountain summits, separated from each other by hundreds of miles of lowlands, where alpine species could not possibly exist, is one of the most striking cases known of the same species living at different points without the apparent possibility of their having migrated from one point to another. It is indeed a remarkable fact to see so many plants of the same species living on the snowy regions of the Alps or Pyrenees, and in the extreme northern parts of Europe. But it is far more remarkable that the plants on the White Mountains in the United States of America are all the same with those of Labrador, and nearly all the same, as we hear from Asa Gray, with those on the loftiest mountains in Europe. Even as long ago as 1747, such facts led Gamelin to conclude that the same species must have been independently created at many distinct points, and we might have remained in this same belief had not Agassiz and others called vivid attention to the glacial period, which, as we shall immediately see, affords a simple explanation of these facts. We have evidence of almost every conceivable kind, organic and inorganic, that within a very recent geological period, Central Europe and North America suffered under an Arctic climate. The ruins of a house burnt by fire do not tell their tale more plainly than do the mountains of Scotland and Wales, with their scoured flanks, polished surfaces, and perched boulders, of the many icy streams with which their valleys were lately filled. So greatly has the climate of Europe changed that in northern Italy gigantic moraines left by old glaciers are now clothed by the vine and maize. Throughout a large part of the United States, erratic boulders and scored rocks plainly reveal a former cold period. The former influence of the glacial climate on the distribution of the inhabitants of Europe, as explained by Edward Forbes, is substantially as follows. But we shall follow the changes more readily by supposing a new glacial period slowly to come on, and then pass away as formerly occurred. As the cold came on, and as each more southern zone became fitted for the inhabitants of the north, these would take the places of the former inhabitants of the temperate regions. The latter, at the same time, would travel further and further southward, unless they were stopped by barriers, in which case they would perish. The mountains would become covered with snow and ice, and their former alpine inhabitants would descend to the plains. By the time that the cold had reached its maximum, we should have an arctic flora and fauna covering the central parts of Europe, as far south as the Alps and the Pyrenees, and even stretching into Spain. 
the now temperate regions of the United States would likewise be covered by arctic plants and animals, and these would be nearly the same as those of Europe, for the present circumpolar inhabitants, which we suppose to have travelled everywhere southward, are remarkably uniform throughout the world. As the warmth returned, the arctic forms would retreat northward, closely followed up in their retreat by the productions of the more temperate regions, and as the snow melted from the bases of the mountains, the arctic forms would seize on the cleared and thawed ground, always ascending, as the warmth increased and the snow still further disappeared, higher and higher, whilst their brethren were pursuing their northern journey. Hence, when the warmth had fully returned, the same species which had lately lived together on the European and North American lowlands would again be found in the Arctic regions of the Old and New Worlds, and on many isolated mountain summits far distant from each other. Thus we can understand the identity of many plants at points so immensely remote as the mountains of the United States and those of Europe. We can thus also understand the fact that the alpine plants of each mountain range are more especially related to the arctic forms living due north, or nearly due north of them. For the first migration, when the cold came on, and the re-migration on the returning warmth, would generally have been due south and north. The alpine plants, for example, of Scotland, as remarked by Mr. H. C. Watson, and those of the Pyrenees, as remarked by Ramond, are more especially allied to the plants of northern Scandinavia, those of the United States to Labrador, those of the mountains of Siberia to the Arctic regions of that country. These views, grounded as they are on the perfectly well-ascertained occurrence of a former glacial period, seem to me to explain in so satisfactory a manner the present distribution of the alpine and arctic productions of Europe and America, that when in other regions we find the same species on distant mountain summits, we may almost conclude without other evidence that a colder climate formerly permitted their migration across the intervening lowlands, now become too warm for their existence. As the arctic forms moved first southward and afterwards backward to the north in unison with the changing climate, they will not have been exposed during their long migrations to any great diversity of temperature, and as they all migrated in a body together their mutual relations will not have been much disturbed. Hence, in accordance with the principles inculcated in this volume, these forms will not have been liable to much modification but with the alpine productions left isolated from the moment of returning warmth, first at the bases and ultimately on the summits of the mountains, the case will have been somewhat different, for it is not likely that all the same arctic species will have been left on mountain ranges far distant from one another and have survived there ever since. They will also in all probability have become mingled with ancient alpine species, which must have existed on the mountains before the commencement of the glacial epoch, and which, during the coldest period, will have been temporarily driven down to the plains. 
they will also have been subsequently exposed to somewhat different climatical influences. Their mutual relations will have been in some degree disturbed, consequently they will have been liable to modification, and they have been modified. For if we compare the present alpine plants and animals of the several great European mountain ranges with one another, though many of the species remain identically the same, some exist as varieties, some as doubtful forms or subspecies, and some as distinct yet closely allied species, representing each other on several ranges. In the foregoing illustration I have assumed that at the commencement of the imaginary glacial period, the Arctic productions were as uniform round the polar regions as they are at the present day. But it is also necessary to assume that many sub-Arctic and some few temperate forms were the same round the world. For some of the species which now exist on the lower mountain slopes and on the plains of North America and Europe are the same. And it may be asked how I account for this degree of uniformity of the sub-Arctic and temperate forms around the world at the commencement of the real glacial period. At the present day, the sub-Arctic and northern temperate productions of the old and new worlds are separated from each other by the whole Atlantic Ocean and by the northern part of the Pacific. During the glacial period, when the inhabitants of the old and new worlds lived further southward than they do at the present, they must have been still more completely separated from each other by wider spaces of ocean, so that it may well be asked how the same species could then, or previously, have entered the two continents. The explanation, I believe, lies in the nature of the climate before the commencement of the glacial period. At this, the newer Pliocene period, the majority of the inhabitants of the world were specifically the same as now, and we have good reason to believe that the organisms which now live under latitude 60 degrees lived during the Pliocene period further north, under the polar circle in latitude 66 to 67 degrees, and that the present Arctic productions then lived on the broken land still nearer to the pole. Now if we look at a terrestrial globe, we see under the polar circle that there is almost continuous land from western Europe through Siberia to eastern North America. And this continuity of the circumpolar land, with the consequent freedom under a more favorable climate for intermigration, will account for the supposed uniformity of the subarctic and temperate productions of the old and new worlds at a period anterior to the glacial epoch. Believing, from reasons before alluded to, that our continents have long remained in nearly the same relative position, though subjected to great oscillations of level, I am strongly inclined to extend the above view and to infer that during some earlier and still warmer period, such as the older Pliocene period, a large number of the same plants and animals inhabited the almost continuous circumpolar land and that these plants and animals, both in the old and new worlds, began slowly to migrate southwards as the climate became less warm, long before the commencement of the glacial period. We now see, as I believe, their descendants, mostly in a modified condition, in the central parts of Europe and the United States. On this view we can understand the relationship with very little identity between the productions of North America and Europe, 
a relationship which is highly remarkable, considering the distance of the two areas and their separation by the whole Atlantic Ocean. We can further understand the singular fact remarked on by several observers that the productions of Europe and America during the later tertiary stages were more closely related to each other than they are at the present time. For during these warmer periods, the northern parts of the Old and New Worlds will have been almost continuously united by land, serving as a bridge, since rendered impassable by cold for the intermigration of their inhabitants. During the slowly decreasing warmth of the Pliocene period, as soon as the species in common, which inhabited the Old and New Worlds, migrated south of the polar circle, they will have been completely cut off from each other. This separation, as far as the more temperate productions are concerned, must have taken place long ages ago, as the plants and animals migrated southward. They will have become mingled in the one great region with the Native American productions, and would have had to compete with them, and in the other great region with those of the Old World. Consequently, we have here everything favorable for much modification for far more modification than with the alpine productions. Left isolated, within a much more recent period, on the several mountain ranges and on the arctic lands of Europe and North America. Hence it has come that when we compare the now living productions of the temperate regions of the new and old worlds, we find very few identical species, though Asa Gray has lately shown that more plants are identical than was formerly supposed but we find in every great class many forms, which some naturalists rank as geographical races, and others as distinct species, and a host of closely allied or representative forms, which are ranked by all naturalists as specifically distinct. As on the land, so in the waters of the sea, a slow southern migration of a marine fauna, which, through the Pliocene, or even a somewhat earlier period, was nearly uniform along the continuous shores of the polar circle, will account, on the theory of modification, for many closely allied forms now living in marine areas completely sundered. Thus, I think, we can understand the presence of some closely allied, still existing, and extinct tertiary forms on the eastern and western shores of temperate North America, and the still more striking fact of many closely allied crustaceans, as described in Dana's admirable work, some fishes and other marine animals inhabiting the Mediterranean and the seas of Japan, these two areas being now completely separated by the breadth of a whole continent and by wide expanses of ocean. These cases of close relationship in species either now or formerly inhabiting the seas of the western and eastern shores of North America, the Mediterranean and Japan, and the temperate lands of North America and Europe are inexplicable on the theory of creation. We cannot maintain that such species have been created alike in correspondence with the nearly similar physical conditions of the areas, for if we compare, for instance, certain parts of South America with parts of South Africa or Australia, we see conditions closely similar in all their physical conditions, yet their inhabitants utterly dissimilar. Alternate Glacial Periods in the North and South 
But we must return to our more immediate subject. I am convinced that Forbes' view may be largely extended. In Europe we meet with the plainest evidence of the glacial period, from the western shores of Britain to the Ural Range and southward to the Pyrenees. We may infer from the frozen mammals and nature of the mountain vegetation that Siberia was similarly affected. In the Lebanon, according to Dr. Hooker, perpetual snow formerly covered the central axis and fed glaciers which rolled four hundred feet down the valleys. The same observer has recently found great moraines at a low level of the Atlas Range in North Africa. Along the Himalaya, at points nine hundred miles apart, glaciers have left their marks of the former low descent. And in Sikkim, Dr. Hooker saw maize growing on ancient and gigantic moraines. Southward of the Asiatic continent, on the opposite side of the equator, we know from the excellent researches of Dr. J. Haast and Dr. Hector that in New Zealand immense glaciers formerly descended to a low level, and the same plants found by Dr. Hooker on widely separated mountains in this island tell the same story of a former cold period. From the facts communicated to me by the Rev. W. B. Clark, it appears also that there are traces of former glacial action on the mountains of the southeastern corner of Australia. Looking to America, in the northern half, ice-borne fragments of rock have been observed on the eastern side of the continent, as far south as latitude 36 and 37 degrees, and on the shores of the Pacific, where the climate is now so different as far south as latitude 46 degrees. Erratic boulders have also been noticed on the Rocky Mountains. In the Cordillera of South America, nearly under the equator, glaciers once extended far below their present level. In central Chile I have examined a great mound of detritus with vast boulders crossing the Portillo Valley, which there can hardly be a doubt once formed a huge moraine and Mr. D. Forbes informs me that he has found in various parts of the Cordillera, from latitude 13 through 30 degrees south, at about the height of 12,000 feet, deeply furrowed rocks, resembling those with which he was familiar in Norway, and likewise great masses of detritus, including grooved pebbles. Along this whole space of the Cordillera, true glaciers do not now exist, even at much more considerable heights. Further south, on both sides of the continent, from latitude 41 degrees to the southernmost extremity, we have the clearest evidence of formal glacier action in numerous immense boulders transported far from their parent source. From these several facts, namely from the glacial action having extended all around the northern and southern hemispheres, from the period having been in a geological sense recent in both hemispheres, from its having lasted in both during a great length of time, as may be inferred from the amount of work affected, and lastly from glaciers having recently descended to a low level along the whole line of the Cordillera. It at one time appeared to me that we could not avoid the conclusion that the temperature of the whole world had been simultaneously lowered during the glacial period. 
But now Mr. Kroll, in a series of admirable memoirs, has attempted to show that a glacial condition of climate is the result of various physical causes, brought into operation by an increase in the eccentricity of the Earth's orbit. All of these causes tend toward the same end, but the most powerful appears to be the indirect influence of the eccentricity of the orbit upon oceanic currents. According to Mr. Kroll, cold periods regularly recur every ten to fifteen thousand years, and these at long intervals are extremely severe, owing to certain contingencies, of which the most important, as Sir C. Lyell has shown, is the relative position of the land and water. Mr. Kroll believes that the last great glacial period occurred about 240,000 years ago, and endured, with slight alterations of climate, for about 160,000 years. With respect to more ancient glacial periods, several geologists are convinced from direct evidence that such occurred during the Miocene and Eocene formations, not to mention still more ancient formations. But the most important result for us arrived at by Mr. Cole is that whenever the northern hemisphere passes through a cold period, the temperature of the southern hemisphere is actually raised, with the winters rendered much milder, chiefly through changes in the direction of the ocean currents. So conversely it will be with the northern hemisphere, while the southern passes through a glacial period. This conclusion throws so much light on geographical distribution that I am strongly inclined to trust in it, but I will first give the facts which demand explanation. In South America, Dr. Hooker has shown that besides many closely allied species, between forty and fifty of the flowering plants of Tierra del Fuego, forming no inconsiderable part of its scanty flora, are common to North America and Europe, enormously remote, as these areas in opposite hemispheres are from each other. On the lofty mountains of equatorial America, a host of peculiar species belonging to European genera occur. On the Oregon mountains of Brazil, some few temperate European, some Antarctic, and some Andean genera were found by Gardner, which do not exist in the low intervening hot countries. On the Scylla of Caracas, the illustrious Humboldt long ago found species belonging to the genera characteristic of the Cordillera. In Africa, several forms characteristic of Europe, and some few representatives of the flora of the Cape of Good Hope, occur on the mountains of Abyssinia. At the Cape of Good Hope, a very few European species believed not to have been introduced by man, and on the mountains several representative European forms are found which have not been discovered in the intertropical parts of Africa. Dr. Hooker has also lately shown that several of the plants, living in the upper parts of the lofty island of Fernando Po, and on the neighboring Cameroon Mountains in the Gulf of Guinea, are closely related to those on the mountains of Abyssinia, and likewise to those of temperate Europe. It also now appears, as I hear from Dr. Hooker, that some of these same temperate plants have been discovered by the Reverend R. T. Lowe on the mountains of the Cape Verde Islands. This extension of the same temperate forms, almost under the equator, 
across the whole continent of Africa and to the mountains of the Cape Verde archipelago is one of the most astonishing facts ever recorded in the distribution of plants. On the Himalaya and on the certain isolated mountain ranges of the peninsula of India, on the heights of Ceylon and on the volcanic cones of Java, many plants occur either identically the same or representing each other, and at the same time representing plants of Europe not found in the intervening hot lowlands. A list of the genera of plants collected on the loftier peaks of Java raises a picture of a collection made on a hillock in Europe. Still more striking is the fact that peculiar Australian forms are represented by certain plants growing on the summits of the mountains of Borneo. Some of these Australian forms, as I hear from Dr. Hooker, extend along the heights of the peninsula of Malacca, and are thinly scattered on the one hand over India, and on the other hand as far north as Japan. On the southern mountains of Australia, Dr. F. Muller has discovered several European species. Other species not introduced by man occur on the lowlands, and a long list can be given, as I am informed by Dr. Hooker, of European genera found in Australia, but not in the intermediate torrid regions. In the admirable Introduction to the Flora of New Zealand by Dr. Hooker, analogous and striking facts are given in regards to the plants of that large island. Hence we see that certain plants growing on the temperate plains of the north and south are either the same species or varieties of the same species. It should, however, be observed that these plants are not strictly arctic forms, for, as Mr. H. C. Watson has remarked, in receding from polar toward equatorial latitudes, the alpine or mountain flora really become less and less arctic. Besides these identical and closely allied forms, many species inhabiting the same widely sundered areas, belonging to genera not found in the intermediate tropical lowlands. These brief remarks apply to plants alone. But some few analogous facts could still be given in regards to terrestrial animals. In marine productions, similar cases likewise occur. As an example, I may quote a statement by that highest authority, Professor Dana, that it is certainly a wonderful fact that New Zealand should have a closer resemblance in its crustacea to Great Britain, its antipode, than to any other part of the world. Sir J. Richardson also speaks of the reappearance on the shores of New Zealand, Tasmania, etc., of northern forms of fish. Dr. Hooker informs me that twenty-five species of algae are common to New Zealand and to Europe. But they have not been found in the intermediate tropical seas. From the foregoing facts, namely the presence of temperate forms on the highlands across the whole of equatorial Africa, and along the peninsula of India to Ceylon and the Malay archipelago, and in less well-marked manners across the wide expanse of tropical South America, it appears almost certain that some former period no doubt during the most severe part of a glacial period, that the lowlands of these great continents were everywhere tenanted under the equator by a considerable number of temperate forms. At this period, 
The equatorial climate at that level of the sea was probably about the same with what is now experienced at a height of from five to six thousand feet under the same latitude, or perhaps even rather cooler. During this, the coldest period, the lowlands under the equator must have been clothed with a mingled tropical and temperate vegetation, like that described by Hooker as growing luxuriantly at the height of from four to five thousand feet on the lower slopes of the Himalaya, but with perhaps a still greater preponderance of temperate forms. So again, in the mountainous island of Fernando Po in the Gulf of Guinea, Mr. Mann found temperate European forms beginning to appear at the height of about 5,000 feet. On the mountains of Panama, at the height of only 2,000 feet, Dr. Seaman found the vegetation like that of Mexico, with forms of the torrid zone harmoniously blended with those of the temperate. Now, let us see whether Mr. Cole's conclusion that the northern hemisphere suffered from the extreme cold of the great glacial period, the southern hemisphere was actually warmer, throws any clear light on the present apparently inexplicable distribution of various organisms in the temperate parts of both hemispheres, and on the mountains of the tropics. The glacial period, as measured by years, must have been very long and when we remember over what vast spaces some naturalized plants and animals have spread within a few centuries, this period will have been ample for any amount of migration. As the cold became more and more intense, we know that arctic forms invaded the temperate regions, and, from the facts just given, there can hardly be a doubt that some of the more vigorous, dominant, and widest spreading temperate forms invaded the equatorial lowlands. The inhabitants of these hot lowlands would have at the same time migrated to the tropical and subtropical regions of the south, for the southern hemisphere was at this period warmer. On the decline of the glacial period, as both hemispheres gradually recovered their former temperature, the northern temperate forms living on the lowlands under the equator would have been driven from their former homes, or have been destroyed, being replaced by the equatorial forms returning from the south. Some, however, of the northern temperate forms would almost certainly have ascended any adjoining high land, where, if sufficiently lofty, they would have long survived, like the arctic forms on the mountains of Europe. They might have survived even if the climate were not perfectly fitted for them, for the change of temperature must have been very slow, and plants undoubtedly possess a certain capacity for acclimatization, as shown by their transmitting to their offspring different constitutional powers of resisting heat and cold. In the regular course of events, the southern hemisphere would in its turn be subjected to a severe glacial period with the northern hemisphere rendered warmer, and then the southern temperate forms would invade the equatorial lowlands. The northern forms, which had before been left on the mountains, would now descend and mingle with the southern forms. The latter, when the warmth returned, would return to their former homes, leaving some few species on the mountains and carrying southward with them some of the northern temperate forms, which had descended from their mountain fastness. 
Thus we should have some few species identically the same in the northern and southern temperate zones, and on the mountains of the intermediate tropical regions. But the species left during a long time on these mountains, or in opposite hemispheres, would have to compete with many new forms, and would be exposed to somewhat different physical conditions. Hence they would be eminently liable to modification, and would generally now exist as varieties, or as representative species, and this is the case. We must also bear in mind the occurrence in both hemispheres of former glacial periods, for these will account, in accordance with the same principles, for the many quite distinct species inhabiting the same widely separated areas, and belonging to genera not now found in the intermediate torrid zones. It is a remarkable fact, strongly insisted on by Hooker in regard to America, and by Alphonse de Candolle in regard to Australia, that many more identical or slightly modified species have migrated from the north to the south than in a reversed direction. We see, however, a few southern forms on the mountains of Borneo and Abyssinia. I suspect that this preponderant migration from the north to the south is due to the greater extent of land in the north, and to the northern forms having existed in their own homes in greater numbers, and having consequently been advanced through natural selection and competition to a higher stage of perfection or dominating power than the southern forms. And thus, when the two sets became commingled in the equatorial regions during the alternations of the glacial periods, the northern forms were the more powerful, and were able to hold their places on the mountains, and afterwards migrate southwards with the southern forms, but not so the southern in regard to the northern forms. In the same manner, at the present day, we see that very many European productions cover the ground in La Plata, New Zealand, and, to a lesser degree, in Australia, and have beaten the natives, whereas extremely few southern forms have become naturalized in any part of the northern clemisphere, though hides, wool, and other objects likely to carry seeds have been largely imported to Europe during the last two or three centuries from La Plata, and during the last forty or fifty years from Australia. The Nilgiri Mountains in India, however, offer a partial exception, for here, as I hear from Dr. Hooker, Australian forms are rapidly sowing themselves and becoming naturalized. Before the last great glacial period, no doubt the intertropical mountains were stocked with more endemic alpine forms, but these have almost everywhere yielded to the more dominant forms generated in the larger areas and more efficient workshops of the north. In many islands the native productions are nearly equaled, or even outnumbered, by those which have become naturalized, and this is the first step toward their extinction. Mountains are islands on the land, and their inhabitants have yielded to those produced within the larger areas of the north, just in the same way as the inhabitants of real islands have everywhere yielded, and are still yielding, to continental forms naturalized through man's agency. The same principles apply to the distribution of terrestrial animals and to marine productions, in the northern and southern temperate zones, and on the intertropical mountains. 
When, during the height of the glacial period, the ocean currents were widely different from what they are now, some of the inhabitants of the temperate seas might have reached the equator. Of these, a few would perhaps at once be able to migrate southwards by keeping to the cooler currents, while others might remain and survive in the colder depths until the southern hemisphere was in its turn subjected to a glacial climate and permitted their further progress, in nearly the same manner as, according to Forbes, isolated species inhabited by Arctic productions exist to the present day in the deeper parts of the northern temperate seas. I am far from supposing that all the difficulties in regard to the distribution and affinities of the identical and allied species, which now live so widely separated in the north and south, and sometimes on the intermediate mountain ranges, are removed on the views above given. The exact lines of migration cannot be indicated. We cannot say why certain species and not others have migrated, why certain species have been modified and have given rise to new forms, while others have remained unaltered. We cannot hope to explain such facts until we can say why one species and not another becomes naturalized by man's agency in a foreign land, why one species ranges twice or thrice as far, and is twice or thrice as common as other species within their own homes. Various special difficulties also remain to be solved. For instance, the occurrence, as shown by Dr. Hooker, of the same plants so enormously remote as Kerguelen Land in New Zealand and Fuegia, but icebergs, as suggested by Lyell, might have been concerned in their dispersal. The existence at these and other distant points of the southern hemisphere of species which, though distinct, belong to genera exclusively confined to the south, is a more remarkable case. Some of these species are so distinct that we cannot suppose that there has been a time since the commencement of the last glacial period for their migration and subsequent modification to the necessary degree. These facts seem to indicate that distinct species belonging to the same genera have migrated in radiating lines from a common center and I am inclined to look in the southern, as in the northern hemisphere, to a former and warmer period, before the commencement of the last glacial period, when the Antarctic lands, now covered with ice, supported a highly peculiar and isolated flora. It may be suspected that before this flora was exterminated during the last glacial epoch, a few forms had been already widely dispersed to various points of the southern hemisphere, by occasional means of transport, and by the aid as halting-places of now-sunken islands. Thus the southern shores of America, Australia, and New Zealand might have become slightly tinted by the same peculiar forms of life. Sir C. Lyell, in a striking passage, has speculated, in language almost identical with mine, on the effects of great alternations of climate throughout the world on geographic distribution. And we have now seen that Mr. Kroll's conclusion that successive glacial periods in the one hemisphere coincide with warmer periods in the opposite hemisphere, 
together with the admission of the slow modification of species, explains a multitude of facts in the distribution of the same and of allied forms of life in all parts of the globe. The living waters have flowed during one period from the north and during another from the south, and in both cases have reached the equator. But the stream of life has flowed with greater force from the north than in the opposite direction, and has consequently more freely inundated the south. As the tide leaves its drift in horizontal lines, rising higher on the shores where the tide rises highest, so have the living waters left their living drift on our mountain summits, in a line gently rising from the Arctic lowlands to a great latitude under the equator. The various beings thus left stranded may be compared with savage races of man, driven up and surviving in the mountain fastness of almost every land, which serves as a record, full of interest to us, of the former inhabitants of the surrounding lowlands. So ends chapter 12 of The Origin of Species by Charles Darwin.